NWP Radio. You're listening to NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP. Howdy, hello, happy, happy, and a wonderful season's greeting to all listeners and friends across the National Writing Project Network. Almost a year ago, the great Phoebe Yeah sent me a manuscript with a post-it note that simply read, pay attention to this book. You really need to read it. Fast forward to present day, and a hard copy of the book arrived to my office at the very same, same time as one of my students at Fairfield University, an undergraduate working towards teaching certification, approached me with this idea. Hey, what if you had a student host an author on the right time? Could that happen? And I immediately thought, hey, you know what? That's a wonderful idea, especially since so many of us feel like imposters when we're first gaining our teaching legs. My name is Brian Ripley Crandall, and I'm thrilled to be here again with my co-host, Tanya Baker, who joins us from the West Coast. Howdy, friend. Have you recovered from a fantastic, exhilarating NCTE in Columbus, Ohio? Hello, Brian. Um, I have recovered. I had a very quiet week during Thanksgiving. So um, so yeah, I feel great. And also that conference was amazing. It's so it felt like the before times when we all got together and knew what we were doing when we were face to face. So great to have NWP and NCTE colleagues all in one place. Um, it's also an amazing pleasure to host The Right Time, where we bring incredible authors together with teachers who love promoting literacy and learning in their classrooms. Those of us who've been doing this work for a very long time still feel like imposters from time to time, as working with young people in school is never the same two days in a row. Uh, that's why I thought it was a wonderful idea to bring the next generation of educators with a pre-service guest tonight. And of course, we couldn't be more delighted than to bring the award-winning writer Patricia Park to the show. We are thrilled to feature imposter syndrome and other confessions of Alejandra Kim on today's show. Yeah, how lucky are we, Tanya? Patricia Park is a tenured professor of creative writing at American University, a Fulbright Scholar in Creative Arts, an Edith Wharton Writer-in-Residence, and a Jerome Hill Artist Fellow. She's the author of the YA novel, Imposter Syndrome and Other Confessions of Alejandra Kim, and the adult novel, Re-Jane, a retelling of Jane Eyre, named New York Times Book Review Editor's Choice, winner of an American Library Association Award, and NPR Fresh Air Pick, and others. She's written for the New York Times, The New Yorker, Guardian, and other venues. Her new novel, her YA novel, What's Eating Jackie O, is coming out this April in 2024. Ooh, might be another show. Another show. <laughs> Uh, Joanna Dalton is in her senior year at Fairfield University, where she's passionately pursuing her studies as an English major, accompanied with minors in elementary and special ed. Her academic journey will culminate with a master's degree in elementary education in the spring of 2025. Joanna is also a dedicated substitute teacher at an elementary school. Originally from Saratoga Springs, New York, she has a deep-rooted love for travel and a profound connection with nature. Joanna's heart lies in assisting students, whether it be through tutoring, mentoring, or offering valuable guidance. Joanna champions the cause of inclusion both in her current life and for, for her future career as an educator. <clears throat> her dedication to creating inclusive and supportive learning environments underscores her belief in the power of diversity and the importance of fostering acceptance values she wants to instill within her classroom and throughout her life's journey. 
Welcome to both of you. So Joanna, we're going to hand the show over to you and you can offer us a writing prompt for those people who want to stop and write a little bit. And then you can just jump right into the interview. We'll hang on for a little while while you read your prompt. Sounds good. So as I read imposter syndrome, I thought more and more about what it means to feel like an imposter, not only as a student, but also since I'm a young adult moving into the teaching profession. So writers out there, feel free to pause and write um, or find time to respond later. For an introductory writing prompt, I want writers to imagine that they're about to accept an award. As you are walking on stage to receive that award, you cannot shake the feeling that you don't deserve or didn't earn it. Describe the feelings that you have in that very moment. Then explore how you as an imposter to the situation can overcome these doubts and learn to embrace your achievements. That is a great prompt. Been there, done that. Have a good conversation. <laughs> we'll be back in a little while. Thank you. So, um, Patricia, for my first kind of question, just to get into the field a little bit more, um, becoming a teacher we do play a cr crucial role in making students feel that they are capable, that they belong. However, as new teachers or any human taking on a new position, we also can feel this way. Have you ever felt like an imposter as a teacher during your time at American University or just in your career as a whole? Um, hi, Joanna. Yeah, firstly, I'm just I'm, I'm thrilled to be in conversation with you. Um, and I, I feel like I, I know I was, I feel like I was just in your shoes too. Um, you, you know, you're in your senior year, you're on this precipice of being a young adult, uh, going into adulthood and figuring out like, what's up after this. I feel like an imposter like every day, even still, <laughs> even though I literally wrote the book on imposter syndrome. Um, in my early teaching days, I feel like I did, I was Goldilocks too much, too little, and I'm still just trying to figure out the the middle, right? Like just right, not too hot, not too cold. Um, one like silly thing I did in one of my, in like probably in my third or fourth year of teaching, this was um, when I was adjuncting for almost a decade before I got to AU, to American University. Oh, wow. um, it was in Boston. It was so cold. It was like, you know, mid-January. I mean, Boston, you know, New England cold, right? Yes. yes. <laughs> And um, I, I just like threw on a thick wool turtleneck um, and like heavy wool slacks and darted off to, to my first day of class. And uh, it was like a three hour block class and the room was overheated and I'm wearing this thick turtleneck <laughs> wool. Oh. And I'm just, I'm sweating. I'm like not even sure about the pacing of things. Um, and I'm, I vowed to never ever wear a turtleneck to class again. Um, so that's I a, that was like a, I wish I could say it was a rookie mistake, but that was like year three into teaching. Um, I've overrun time. I've underrun time. That's the worst. I'd always have these like backup packets of, of extra writing materials or reading materials in case, you know, in case we have a free packet of an extra pack of time, um, or a patch of time. And in one class I was teaching, it was a, it was like an undergrad fiction workshop. We blew through all of my material and all of my extra material before the halfway mark of the class. Um, because I had no sense of pacing, right? When you're a new professor or new teacher, you're like, how long will this activity take? Um, 
So we had, I gave, I gave the students a five minute break. I sprinted to the department to like make more photocopies of more stuff. And then just, oh my gosh, <laughs> bit my lip and just got through the rest of class. Aww, that is so funny. So that was definitely like the start of pacing yourself a little more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and gosh, uh, yeah, I mean, they, they're worse and more cringy stories, but maybe I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for that. Um, that's definitely a good segue into obviously the title of your book, Imposter Syndrome. There has to be more of a personal journey story behind that. Um, can you talk a little bit about how this term kind of came into your life? And what motivated or inspired you to bring this topic into your work, particularly addressing the young adult population? Um, you know, as as an educator, I was seeing um, I was seeing the need. Like a lot of my students um, were really interested in YA, and this was right when I got to AU seven years ago or so. And as an educator, I thought, well, how do I teach them the thing that they want to do? Um, and I started with some of their recs. Um, I just went down the rabbit hole and I realized how far the genre had come from. You know, when I was growing up, we didn't have it as a genre. Um, it was, as a kid, you're just supposed to kind of assume the subjectivity of adult characters and read adult fiction. And then there were children's picture books, but this kind of nebulous, there wasn't much in, in that middle space. Um, so, you know, and I would see in the classroom that my students are struggling with a lot of the same things that the characters in imposter syndrome are struggling with, with feeling like things that Alejandra is, is struggling with. How do you, how do you be an ally? How do you, how do you navigate in a quote unquote woke society? Uh, but how do you also be real? Um, so those are things I was seeing in the classroom. And then just separately as a, as a writer and in my profession, you know, I, th I think uh, I think writing in particular is is a field that can breed a lot of imposter syndrome. Like, yeah, I remember early cocktail parties, you know, like 20 years ago. And I, I'd, you know, I somehow try to like I try to nose into a, a circle, a very tight knit literal circle. <laughs> um, and uh, and then people will be like, well, did you read what so and so wrote in the New York Review of Books this week? And I'm like, uh, no. Um, <laughs> and. Uh, but, uh, you know, without then peddling my own version of the knowledge, well, I read this and this other pl place and this other publication, because I just didn't feel that I was allowed to enter these spaces. So I thought a lot about that every time, even though, you know, this is a work of fiction. So I want to kind of create that separation between Alejandra um, as a character and me as a, as a, as a writer and as a person. But um, I just, I remember so many times when I, I even though I, I technically had earned my place at it at the table, I, I just I felt like I was going to be bounced from the party, so to speak. Yeah, that's a great point. Just like not comparing yourself to others and kind of following your own journey. And I really like that. Um, so, as you know, I'm an English major at Fairfield U. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> <laughs> yes. We are required to take a bunch of courses um, that are the classics kind of, um, but um, they honestly represent like the importance of our literary traditions, which I have grown a passion for over the years at the start, not so much. Um, <laughs> but I love how you included works in 
your novel, like Jane Eyre, Austen, the Brontes, and Wharton. Um, can you elaborate on the significance of incorporating these into Allie's narrative? And do these references speak anything to the theme of female independence, self-doubt, or even future aspirations? Uh, yes, totally. And you're a great reader, Joanna. You found those little Easter eggs in my, like, doffing <laughs> my, my literary hat to, to these, um, to the, our foremothers. Uh, um, Jane Eyre, you know, my first novel, it was an a, a adult novel, um, Read Jane, and it was Jane Eyre set in Korean American Queens. Um, and it also took place in Seoul, South Korea and Brooklyn, um, uh, New York. So I always felt, you know, I read Jane Eyre when I was 11 or 12, and I was just struck by this character who self-identifies as poor, obscure, plain, and little. And she just, she was just such a, a refreshing departure from these, like, conventionally beautiful Disney heroines. Uh, yeah. So the works of, you know, well, you know, with Jane Eyre in particular, it taught me like, you don't have to be mainstream. You don't have to be beautiful, conventionally beautiful. You can still be the heroine of your story. So that was, even though that was published over 200 years ago, it, it was, it, it was such an empowering message for me, right? Um, um, I guess, excuse me, I'm, now I'm like getting tripped up on facts. 200 years ago, we, they, they celebrated the bicentenary of the Brontes, but it may have been of their um, of their lives and maybe not their works. But um, anyway, uh, and with um, with Wharton, Edith Wharton, um, you know that expression "keeping up with the Joneses." That was about Edith Wharton's family. She was a Jones before she got married, and I think she's such a quintessential New York writer. And I'm a um, you know I write about Queens. I write about Native New Yorkers, um, and that's uh, I have to I. I I have to pay homage to her. Um, and I was named, in, yeah, I mean, I can't not. It's like, <laughs> but the problem, I mean, you know, where we occupy very different classes, you know, she is she is of the gentry and these brownstone, you know, allotted families, uh, bicentenary of Charlotte Bronte's birth, not of the publication of Jane Eyre, just going back to a previous fact. But um, <laughs> I, yeah, I was a, a Wharton scholar. I got to, uh, I got to write, actually some early parts of imposter syndrome in Edith Wharton's bedroom where she wrote her novels. It was so wild. I was like, um, and, and very imposter syndrome. I'm like, I'm not worthy. I did not win a Pulitzer prize. I don't deserve to Oh my gosh. That's so awesome though. That is so cool. It was so cool because she, she designed the whole, her whole house. So she had the the room facing east so she would get morning light and she wrote from 6 a.m to 12 noon they didn't le let us sleep in the house it's a it's a museum but uh every morning i just get there first thing um and write in her room and be like what i'm channeling my inner wharton and she's very funny you know the brontes i mean well um with charlotte bronte herself and 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 jane austen like they're very funny women and we don't think about that. We think, oh, they're old and dusty and you gotta like blow the dust off of their works. But actually it's, um, you know, these were models I was turning to. Uh, I didn't have YA as a genre, right? Yeah. And in some ways, Jane Eyre, maybe that could, it's an 18, 19 year old, you know, it could even be read as YA if it were published, if Penguin Random House or whoever published it now, who knows? Maybe it would have been, you know, considered YA. For sure. So do you think that that kind of works into Alejandra's like character 
or is that just like a spur of the moment? These are my women and I just want to include them in my novel. I think she was at Alejandra's a little bit like you, Joanna, where it was like, oh, I'm forced to read these classes. <laughs> I like them now. But what did you just say before? At the start of the year, you know, yeah, exactly. Bit, <laughs> yeah, no. So, yeah, so I, took, I actually, yeah, <laughs> I actually took a whole um, course on Wharton. And at the start, it's kind of hard to see. But towards the end of the course, you can see that, like, she really knew what she was doing, like, especially going after the future over any other writers of her time. So that's a really interesting inclusion in your novel. I love that. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so in um, the course I'm in right now with the man himself, Dr. Crandall, it's called Literature of Young Adults. Um, we've been talking a lot about censorship and book bans in our crazy changing world right now. Um, so how do you perceive and feel the challenges of censorship and book bans in the country today? And how is the importance of freedom of expression within the young adult genre motivated you to publish, publish such a pivotal topic of imposter syndrome? Um, in class with my um, with my undergrad students, I once made like a bad joke. I was like, "We're this is such an exciting time to be writing right now." Like, you you know, in the past, you you have such freedom. In the past, if you wrote one wrong word, like they'd send you and your family to the gulags. And I'm like, "Ha ha ha!" And then the whole room went quiet. And I'm like, "Oh shoot! What did I you know foot in mouth?" moment there's another gaffe in in teaching back to question one and because really in so many countries and in different eras too one false word and you know you would be written off as as you would be labeled by one political party or the other or you would you would face severe consequences not just for you but for your family you know in north korea they punish up to three generations uh, wow. for one person's transgression um, and whether they send you to hard labor or, or um, uh, to the camps. Uh, so I was I was looking at it from a global point of view, um, but I realized that that moment of silence, that kind of like, um, and it was too early in the semester, I think for any students to be like, uh, Professor Park, like it doesn't work. <laughs> like, you know, TikTok tells us something else. Yeah, I think they were, were not yet empowered, <laughs> but um, I, I realized, and actually that moment I think was such a kernel of, of, of writing imposter syndrome. These students who were predominantly white, um, I think they just felt so afraid of being canceled for saying the wrong thing. And I realized, I, I think that that's what that moment of silence was like, oh no, you can't say anything because if you say the wrong thing, yeah, I won't get locked up in the gulags, but maybe I'll get sent to like a metaphorical kind of exile um, yeah. or an yeah existential or an online one. And it, it, so, you know, in, in terms of, and I, I think that's why for me, writing imposter syndrome, it was really important to get a lot of perspectives. You know, I had black sensitivity readers the same way I had white sensitivity readers because I wasn't interested in creating like a cut and dry or like a like a polarized like this is this is how you you be an ally and this is how you're woke and this is how you aren't and if you don't do it that way then then you're done you're canceled like I'm not interested in that because as a novelist like we have 300 pages to to explore an issue versus swiping left or swiping right in a nanosecond the way yes. that our culture, yeah, kind of demands. Yes. Um, 
you know, I, I feel like in, in terms of, so I think, I think about questions like that and, and for me, like I, I have to, you know, I try to be free on the page because then otherwise like kids, your readers will see right through it, especially, especially teens, they know. Um, in terms of censorship and book bans, you know, I'll let my, my colleagues who are, um, really in the front lines of that, I feel like I should give them the respect to talk about their personal experiences with that. Imposter syndrome has been out for too short a time. It's only, it only has just recently come out. Um, but I will give, you know, one example is I was invited to speak at a school um, and I, I thought things were fine. The person who invited me um, had read the book, but then at the last minute they asked to see all of, you know, they, they wanted to know what what passages I was going to read, what my talk was going to be. It, it was a kind of a weird, you know, I've spoken at hundreds of schools and I've never experienced that before. And I, I, I just, it, it felt so weird. Uh, I was being told that the top, the top higher, you know, the top administration was, um, they were hypersensitive about things. Um, and it, it felt like a, a weird moment of, I don't want to say censorship, but maybe it was like, why would I need to run past, um, to, if this had been a precedent set, but, you know, at the, so many other schools, I've, all the other schools I've spoken to, it was this understanding of trust and professionalism, you know, um, that I'm entering this space and I will, you know, speak respect in a respectful way to the students, but I guess they didn't want certain material to come up, certain topics to come up. Um, certain no-no. So uh, yeah, um, I, I don't know. I, I'm I'm really, you know, I, I think I'm as confused by this moment as anyone else. And I just hope we end up like on the right side of history in terms of allowing for freedom of speech. Yeah, I know. I completely agree with that. And thank you for sharing that story about the school. I think that even though you pointed out that imposter syndrome hasn't been out for long enough, I think that's like, something crazy and weird that is probably happening more than we think today so thank you for that sure. um, I will uh, say that one of, I try not to read my reviews but I did read like one Goodreads review I guess it was like the highest compliment they're like this book just wait it will get on the banned book list and it was meant to be a compliment oh my gosh <laughs> that is crazy <laughs> And awesome. <laughs> it's so awesome. It will be banned. No. <laughs> um, so moving on. Um, prior to this interview, I actually had the pleasure of interviewing a woman named Yeti Park. She is a professor at Fairfield University, but she's um, also a social worker. And she's spent a ton of time working with children and families from Asian American or white populations. Um, she is actually a Korean American immigrant herself. And she talked to me a lot about how she tries to live her life in duality. Obviously she lives here right now, but she takes many trips back um, to channel her Korean heritage. Um, but she also adapted a lot to the American culture that surrounded her since she came here as a child. So she does, um, she's been doing research for the past couple of years and it's been focused on promoting mental health for Asian Americans as this population has the least utilization of mental health services compared to all the races nationwide. Can you speak anything on how this deficit of Asian or Korean Americans seeking mental health resources has manifested in your life? 
and or why was it a turning point um, for Alejandra to talk about her feelings towards the end of imposter syndrome, finally? <laughs> um, I think, um, you know, it's it's always tricky to speak in, in, in broad strokes about a community, but a couple of generalizations I think that would be fair to say are um, when you're either from an immigrant community, you're an immigrant or you're the child of immigrant or the descendant of immigrants. Um, and Alejandra says this too, that mental health is a, is a kind of a luxury, right? Like uh, you're just trying to survive. And if you, and, and what kinds of jobs are, are usually allotted or, uh, um, you know, accessible to, to immigrants? Um, more often than not, it's not, it's not professorships. Uh, I mean, there are some, but, um, <clears throat> You know, more often than not, it will be some kind of menial labor, uh, manual labor that charges by the hour you earn by the hour. So every hour you're not working, uh, you're not making money. Um, you don't get holiday pay. <laughs> you don't get sick pay. Um, you don't get, oh, I need a self-care day. <laughs> yeah. and, and then and you still, you know, um, accrue a paycheck. So just the very logistics, just the logistics of um forget uh, the the benefits or, or understanding or having access to understanding resources like therapy you don't even have time I, I think also that's why um you know getting out to vote is is really difficult for a lot of these kinds of communities too because if you're an office worker all right you tell you you know you let your boss know hey you email them hey i'm you know stopping to vote and then heading to the office you can't do that if you're if you're a cashier, if you're you know working behind a deli, if you're doing working behind a dry cleaners. Like customers need to be served, um, yeah. so I think that's one one consideration. Um, and I yeah, I think another is um, and then and then we have the kind of intergenerational trauma that passes down through that too. When I was researching imposter syndrome, I was uh, I found some stats really staggering, um, and. I'm, you know, um, that, um, I, let's see. And, uh, there's a, a, a psychologist character, the, the professor, um, Dr. Chatterjee, she, she's a, she's like a guest lecturer at, at Quaker Oats Prep at Imposter Syndrome. And yes. I'll read her quote, quote, which is from this, this, um, this article I read that I was just, oh, I was staggered by, you know, there are 22 million Asians in America. Uh, yet we're allotted only 0.17 of a percentage point of the National Institutes of Health budget. Um, so we remain literally understudied. Uh, I just want to understand that that 0.17 is of 1%. Yes. So, um, so it's like, a, you know, less than one fifth of a one percentage point on um, is is allotted to um, to understanding mental health issues for for Asians in America, um, even though Asians in America is the fastest growing demographic, um, and we're currently at twenty two million. So um, those kinds of numbers, yeah, I mean it's systemic as well, right? Um, and I, um, with imposter syndrome, Alejandra wonders a lot about her father who. Um, this is not so much of a spoiler alert, but he he passes away, um, and she's trying to understand um, his mental mental health situation, what his state was, 
Um, how could she have helped? What is her own, how is she navigating grief? And uh, we don't talk about it much in communities like mine, but we're starting to. So I'm I'm grateful for that. And I'm hoping imposter syndrome will be part of those conversations. I'm hoping so too. And I think young adult, the more young adults that read this, the more the word will spread and hopefully it will come into play sometime in the very near future. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> um, kind of going off of that topic of inclusivity, I have a passion for inclusion. Um, I am studying special ed in school um, and the study behind disabled individuals and just the impact that they honestly have on our community. Um, and I, I honestly saw numerous connections to disability throughout imposter syndrome not directly to the term disabled that a lot of people use, but um, just in the lives of a lot of the students that Alejandra goes to school with. Um, how do you view the prominence of both able-bodied and disabled bodies throughout the novel? And why do you believe that this perspective is crucial for young adult readers? Um, I think, you know, when we're talking about questions of diversity and inclusivity um, and DEI issues, I think we forget sometimes the A part of that too, DEIA accessibility. And it actually took my, you know, um, my students and colleagues at, at AU to, to um, kind of make me aware, more aware of these issues. So, you know, I think we understand white privilege, right? White male privilege, we rail against, oh, you know, white men, white cis het, het men are, are, you know, the most privileged and the least privilege on that scale, you know, we, we look at things in terms of race and gender um, and sexuality, but I don't think I'm that, I often don't think I'm like the highest on the totem pole, right? I'm um, as, as an Asian American woman, um, but I have in the last, um, you know, maybe just in the, in the past years, I've been thinking a lot about my privilege and how, you know, I live in New York City, so every time I have to just get myself from point A to point B, I've got to go down three flights of stairs, across a platform, up to this. There's no seat on the, you know, and, and I think about, wow, what a privilege that my body can move in this way, um, that I don't have to think about how am I going to access certain spaces. Um, and, um, you know, I did have this uh, a moment, a very teachable moment in the classroom where a student who identified as as disabled had to teach me had and had to kind of open my eyes as it, as it were to um to the kinds of um issues that and struggles that that they face that i have been able to take for granted and you know i was thinking a lot about that and and thinking about how could i have been a better not only a better educator but a better ally um, and I started to think about my privilege in that sense. And as I was writing imposter syndrome, it just felt natural in certain ways to to give voice to um, maybe a, a group that wouldn't be seen in, in this way. I mean, I don't have the right to speak on behalf of that, but I think one form of allyship, and that's such a big theme in imposter syndrome, is is to try to elevate or to try to shine the light on other experiences that are more that are marginalized. Um, in ways that you know, they don't often get the spotlight. So um, I don't know. I think we we as a society have a lot farther to go, further to go. But um, I don't know. I appreciate you picking up on on those <laughs> moments. <laughs> no, I totally agree. But I like how 
like a lot of people kind of consider the term disabled to be like very specific but I liked how a lot of your characters did have like some aspects of disabilities in their life and that only came true to the readers honestly towards the end of the novel um and that was like a very eye-opening part that everyone is kind of facing their own battle whether it's large or small and it's really important to make those connections (laughs) (laughs) um so throughout reading the novel I came across many terms like racial melancholia, Stockholm syndrome, um, diaspora, cognitive dissonance, code switching, emotional homelessness. Um, And I noticed that these terms, as unfamiliar as they might have been to me, I'm sure that they also could have been very unfamiliar to young adults reading it, but also very important. Um, When did these terms come into your awareness? And from an educational standpoint, why do you believe it's important for young adults to encounter them within this kind of contextual narrative. And how do you feel that these terms contribute to imposter syndrome or the theme of feeling like an imposter? Um, I think a lot of these terms, all of them came to me only into adulthood. Um, I mean, even the title imposter syndrome as a concept, I only learned about it like eight years ago. That was the first time I'd heard the term. Um, It was actually when I'd published my first book, Read Jane, And I was like saying something, I like didn't know if I was allowed to be at some conference thing. And someone's like, oh, are you, they're like, why are you having imposter syndrome? And I'm like, wait, what? And I'm like, oh, Um, so terms like that, um, code switching, I was doing a book event um, actually at the Korea Society and someone from the audience made a comment about or asked a question about like how I code switch and my characters code switch. And I'm like, what the hell is code switching? <laughs> I had to like bumble through an answer, talk about imposter syndrome. And then after I got home, I had to like look up what it meant. Um, and, and I think these are racial melancholia also only in the last few years, because it's based on new research by um, two Asian American scholars, one who's a psychologist and one who's an English professor. Um, and and I, I think it just shows how like, when I was coming of age, when I was a, you know, what would be the target demographic or when I was a teen, when I was a young, a YA, what would have been a YA reader, we didn't have these terms. So we could not even articulate what was swirling around and what we were feeling. Um, And so I think it's empowering just to like have terms like this, even though the conversation has moved on, like, have we outgrown imposter syndrome? Stop telling young girls and women that we have imposter syndrome. Um, which I, I am completely on board with. Um, and I also think though that uh, if you decide to say you have something, that's empowering in a way that um, you know we should not be telling other people what they have, but if they choose to own a term, then that's that's within, you know, there's a power there too. Um, and some of the other terms, uh, cognitive dissonance and such, I was a psych minor at Swarthmore. So um, I took a lot of social psychology courses and just uh, stereotype threat um, was another uh, concept that the students learn in imposter syndrome at Quaker Oats. And uh, that was from my psych background. So um, yeah, I, I think just learning the thing that you kind of observe in society and you're like, uh, that's not quite right, but I don't have a word for it. Um, so yes. Yeah. Exactly. No, uh, I totally agree. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm like, man, I, sometimes I just, I'm like, oh, I wish I were coming of age now so that I could have 
I could have the correct vocabulary, like screw these SAT words that don't even serve me anymore. <laughs> no, exactly. And I, I wish that I was exposed to some kind of novel like this when I was of middle school age, because just having, not even if you don't use it, but if you just know what these terms are and that they're very apparent in our world, that that's just like a whole new step. <laughs> um. So throughout reading imposter syndrome, I personally, and I'm sure all readers were presented with a huge sigh of relief for Alejandra when Dr. C gets hired at Quaker Oats High School. And Dr. C's mentorship to Allie becomes a really pivotal point, um, bringing a sense of relief and transformation to her life. How do you envision Dr. C's mentorship teaching a valuable lesson to readers experiencing similar feelings of imposter syndrome? And or could you share your intention behind introducing such a compelling character to the narrative and the impact you hoped Dr. C's role would have on Allie's journey or on the readers? Um, I think this is where I'm sometimes inspired by, you know, Star Wars and the ilk. <laughs> you know, I think we all want, we all want an Obi-Wan in our lives, right? <laughs> and and Obi had Yoda and and then Yoda becomes the next you know and 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 so forth um and so you know I think mentorship it can be tough because I um with Dr. C what I was envisioning um she her personality changed with different drafts that I I'd written but Ala is in this moment where she is she's adrift but she, she keeps doing the thing that she thinks is right, that she's supposed to do. She's like, all right, yeah. this is how you be a good student at Quaker Oats Prep. It means you highlight your books this way, you take notes this way, you give these kinds of answers. And her whole, her like, her whole nervous system and her body and her gut is like, this doesn't quite feel right. And um, getting to study with Dr. C and, and understanding terms like um, stereotype threat, racial melancholia, that these concepts exist, um, and Ala is slowly kind of shedding her Quaker Oats voice and her Queen's voice starts to kind of find its balance. It was the voice that she was suppressing. Speaking of code switching, she was like suppressing her like Queens, Jackson Heights, Alejandra self. Yes. Um, yeah. And trying to, and I think we all do a version of that, right? If I can put you on the spot, Joanna, do you have like a, do you have a thing? Do you have a code switching thing? <laughs> um, I would say in the classroom, I'm I'm a very filtered self with kids. I, even if I want to like rip my hair out for a second, I just take a deep breath and I'm like, okay, I'm a teacher right now. I need to be teacher. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and then when you, when you're with your friends, you like put your metaphorical hair down. Right. And you talk. A exactly. Way. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, for me, it filters down to like, if I'm ordering, if I'm ordering like a coffee and an egg and cheese from like a local neighborhood bodega versus one of those like hipster coffee shops and how my language changes. Like, I'm like, um, you know, oh, uh, let, let me get a coffee regular with a, you know, and an egg and cheese. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and New Yorkers are like quick, but if I'm going to this other place then a hipster place. And then they're like, uh, did you want that egg and cheese on the brioche bun or the gluten-free, you know, semolina roll? And, you know, <laughs> which fair trade coffee, you know, <laughs> I'm like, ah, oh, that's so spot on. So spot yeah. on. <laughs> um, but how's this time to mentorship? Just that um, Alejandra, I think 
she's in this moment, she's about to turn 18. She's starting to question the status quo and, and she starts to find her voice uh, both literally and, and figuratively. And Dr. C is part of that journey. And I think the best mentors like offer guidance, but then also let you have the space to off-road it, to figure it out so that you're not ha being handheld that or or force fed right or, or baby bird feeding you know um yeah and it's finding that balance yeah no I really appreciated that Dr. C was like that for Alejandra and I uh, think that, that kind of mentorship will hopefully do the same for another young adult who is just in the need of a little push towards more of like an adult reality well, it takes two to tango. I mean, there were a bunch of kids who dropped Dr. C's class. Yes. They're like, they're like, I'm out, you know? Um, and, uh, but, uh, so it, 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 uh, Alejandra was ready, willing and open. And so, so you have to find that right match. And then if I can share a secret dream, Joanna, I would love if like Mindy Kaling would play Dr. C, if this oh. gets adapted into anything. <laughs> oh my gosh, that would be good. That would be very good. <laughs> Secret dream. Love it. Yeah. Um, so to kind of conclude our awesome discussion, um, I feel like imposter syndrome weaves through not one, but many very vital themes, such as feeling like an outsider, speaking up, speaking out, religion, family challenges, mental illness, neighborhoods, diversity, finances. Um, and it sparks some curiosity about the future. Are you able to offer a glimpse into themes or projects you are eager to unravel in your upcoming works for YA and or what sparks inspiration for these projects? Um, for me, what inspires me are, is New York City um, and kids here who have to grow up fast. Um, I spent four hours a day on the train get, getting from going to high school. Um, I lived in Queens. Wow. I went to high school in the Bronx. So I took, yeah many modes of public transportation and four hours round trip. So I'd see a lot of New York um, and I want to be able to kind of share those stories because New York stories are American stories are global stories, I think. And, um, and, and kids like Alejandra are, are they're juggling all those, all the things um, I will say. So my, the book coming out next year, what's eating Jackie O um, O-H. Um, she's an aspiring teen chef. She's also from Queens. She's like so done being your model minority. Um, and so she expresses herself through cooking and food. Um, she has a cameo in imposter syndrome. And in fact, um, Bappi uh, from imposter syndrome, Alejandra's dad has had a cameo in my first novel, Read Jane. So they're all like a linked Aww. universe or I sometimes call it the Patricia Park multiverse. And, uh, yeah. So it's, you know, I'm just trying to underscore the theme that people in my community, we contain multitudes. We're not just like a monolith or a single story um, and hopefully done in a funny, humorous and heartfelt way. I love that. I'm so excited <laughs> to read more. Oh, thanks. Thank you so much. This was an interview. This was, this was an interview. We didn't want to come back in. I mean, we were like, let's <laughs> let him go. Let him go. We're, you, we said 
you have so many questions, we're not sure we're going to get to them all. And then we get to it and we're like, wait a second, we want more questions because this was fascinating and it was wonderful. It was, I kept writing, we text back and forth, Tanya, this is brilliant. This is brilliant. <laughs> I have to say, Carol did arrive. Here she is. Say, Carol. Oh, <laughs> Say hi. Oh, I wish Happy I had a, everyone. Passing a virtual treat. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh. No, outstanding. And, and, and Tanya and I have learned over and over again, this is probably our 65th, 66th episode. We never thought we would go this far. And the one thing that we hear over and over, the common thread is our writers that we put on the show are writing the books they wish they had when they were mm -hmm. kids. They are finding the stories that have never been told in American classrooms and, and sharing them with teachers like us so that we can expose kids that represent the diversity and the demographics of this nation. And this was so outstanding. And what makes it highly unique, again, imposter syndrome, is the voice of Alejandra is so, I mean, she she's woke, but she's also clever with woke. And she's got insider knowledge because of her home community that's not represented in school. And the whole idea that you positioned her as having experience in South America at first. So she has that too. It makes her so beautifully complex and unique that so many young people in this nation, including, you know, I'm a, a white guy from upstate New York. This is brilliant. So teachers go get this book. I'm serious. Get this oh. book. <laughs> Thank you so much for saying that. I mean, really that's, that's what we're trying to do as writers to achieve the universal through the specific story. So if a, a white dude from upstate New York can see himself in imposter syndrome, like my work here is done. <laughs> and just in the same way, if, you know, as uh, you know, uh, a girl coming of age in, in Queens sees herself too, or, or coming of age in across the country or across the world. Yeah. Oh gosh. Thank you so awesome. much. Awesome. <laughs> You have to know that you told everybody that you are creating a multiverse. So your work is just beginning because <laughs> our love for this space and these characters is um, probably going to be insatiable. I know you may move on, but I think oh, readers' thank hearts you. are not going this to. This is it. <laughs> these oh. are the galleys. <laughs> and, uh, Alejandra has a very small cameo herself in the, in the, in the back page. Um, uh, and then Jackie, well, I, I won't spoil where, but, uh, and then Jackie's cameo is is an imposter syndrome. That they go to this deli called Melty's in in Midtown. They get sandwiches, and there's a girl working behind the counter, and that's Jack. That's Jackie O. <laughs> oh well, my if that gosh. advanced reader copy wants to make its way to Southern Connecticut, I will put it to good use really quick. <laughs> I, I might know a guy. <laughs> I just want to mention to all the listeners out there, um, Patricia Park is coming to Connecticut. She's going to be doing a reading. Hopefully, Dr. Crandall and I will be there of imposter syndrome and other confessions of Alejandra Kim on Thursday, January 4th, 2024 at 7.30 p.m. on the Western campus of Western Connecticut State University, which is in Danbury, Connecticut. And then- Well done. Just as a little um, concluding writing prompt for any writers out there, I would like writers to delve into the considerations of societal responsibilities in addressing imposter syndrome. Writers should share their insights on the specific responsibilities one might offer to individuals experiencing feelings of being an imposter and discuss the roles we can assume to foster a sense of belonging. 
Writers should draw upon personal experiences, recounting moments when either someone has guided them through feelings of imposter syndrome or they played a mentoring role exploring the impact of these connections and promoting inclusivity. Lovely. Uh, let's Hi. see, Joanna, I think I have another slide. I'm supposed to say thank you to everyone. And I think I want to start with you. I so lovely to meet you and hear your thinking and hear about your work already. And we are very excited to welcome you into our profession. And you, I was going to say it in a more threatening tone, but I, I'll say instead of welcoming tone, uh, we really hope that you'll join us in the National Writing Project as when you join the profession or even now. For so, sure. For sure. So thank, thank you so much for having me. I was going to say you better join us, but then that didn't sound welcoming. So. <laughs> Look out, and Capital Patricia District Park, Writing. Oh, yeah, go cap, ahead, Ryan. Capital, look out Capital Writing uh, Project in, uh, in Albany, New York, because that's the closest to Saratoga Springs area. <laughs> Excellent. Yes. And Patricia, it has been a joy. Uh, your books are so full of life and voice. And then to hear you come and talk about them, uh, really, um, we can see why. It was just lovely to meet you and have you on oh the show. Gosh. And it was such you... a treat. Thank you. Thank you all for for such a fun interview, such a thoughtful one, and and all the work that went in behind behind the scenes too. Thank you. Thanks. And of course, listeners, thank you for joining us for another episode of the Right Time. If you don't want to miss these amazing interviews, sign up for NWP's newsletter. Uh, join our community at the studio.nwp.org or um, find our podcast at the um, at bit.ly slash dot slash NWP radio. Uh, thank you, everyone. And have a great night. You're listening to NWP radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP. NWP radio.